0: Okay, if you would like to open up your Bibles, please, to Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. On uh, Sunday mornings when I'm teaching, I'm going through the book of Judges. And uh, we're going to try and do the whole chapter this morning. Now, uh, yeah, let's open up with a word of Father God, as we turn to your word this morning, we pray that you would send your spirit to illuminate your texts to us, that we would both understand what we're reading, but also draw from it a lesson to apply to our lives, to encourage and to help us where we presently stand, and to help us move forward to the place and the purpose as you have for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now just a quick uh, reminder of what we've seen in the book of Judges, that... Um, the, Judges, the book of Judges is, is a picture of a continual cycle of oppression and deliverance. The children of Israel uh, uh, engage in evil before the Lord, and uh, that disobedience prompts the Lord to bring discipline to them. Discipline in, by way of an oppressive force that comes in and places the children of Israel under subjection for a period of time. That discipline brings distress. And from that distress, the children of Israel would cry out to the Lord and the Lord would raise up a deliverer. And that deliverer would uh, come as a military leader, typically, first of all, to, to fight and overcome the oppression and bring uh, a military peace to the land. But then would continue to bring a, a judicial peace by judging the land, by governing them and guiding them and answering their disputes. Thus, Israel would be restored to a place of relationship with God. But that would only last for a season. And then typically when the deliverer passed away, the children of Israel would return back to their disobedience and the cycle would start again. Now, in the in the duration of the book of Judges, we're going to see seven cycles of oppression and deliverance. And. Uh, and uh, the oppressors uh, are listed there, as are the deliverers and the Bible passages to be able to give you some idea of those seven cycles. Now, so far, we have seen the first three cycles pass in chapter three um, with uh, the Mesopotamians, the Moabites and the Philistines bringing a influence to Israel. And then God raised up in turn Othniel, Ehud and Shamgar to bring deliverance as we get to. Uh, chapter four here we're going to look at an oppressor in the form of the Canaanites and uh, if you've been keeping a nice steady list of who are the judges it's at this point that we start to hit a problem is Deborah Deborah and Barrett counted as a fourth and a fifth judge or are they a combined force of just one judge but two halves of the same judge Uh, We'll answer that in just a second. Um, But if you might remember from last time that Deborah and Barak are contemporaries with Shamgar. Shamgar was judging the Philistines and and, uh, dealing with an oppression uh, in the south where the Philistines had, had oppressed the land there. But the Canaanite oppression came from the north. So Deborah and Barak will be dealing things from the north. Now, are Deborah and Barrack two judges or two halves of the same judge? Well, in my opinion, they are co-judges, each occupying a different role. Um, so they are technic- So although we're in the fourth cycle, they count as the fourth and the fifth judges. Deborah operates as a judge; she's the judicial wing, um, ruling over the people and answering disputes. Whereas Barrack is the deliverer, uh, uh, occupying and help in the military wing bringing deliverance from the oppressor. Now, usually the Lord, as I say, raises up a military leader. He then delivers Israel from the oppressor. Then once peace is established, operates as a judge. Here, the pattern seems to be reversed because Deborah first operates as a judge and then God raises up Barak to to deliver Israel. And this account spreads over two chapters, Judges 4 and Judges 5. Judges 4 is the historical narrative of this cycle, what happens, Whereas Judges chapter five is a poetic narrative of this cycle. It's the song of Deborah. It's a song of victory um, reciting all that happens. I kind of wanted to do four and five together, but it's just too much text to be able to gather. So we'll do that next time. Um, Something we should also note from Judges five, verse eight, it states not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. Israel's armory was at an all-time low due, during this time, probably due to the Philistine control not permitting the use of weapons. That's why Shamgar, Shamgar probably fought using an ox goad. But uh, when you consider that the Canaanite military consisted of 900 iron chariots, this was not only a fearful threat in its ordinary sense, but it was increased by the fact that there was a limited amount of swords and weapons, available to the israelites at the time but let's start by looking at the fourth cycle and we're going to read verses one to three where it says when ehud was dead the children of israel again did evil in the sight of the lord so the lord sold them into the hand of jabin king of canaan who reigned in hazor the commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harosheth agoyim And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he harshly oppressed the children of Israel. So there was peace in Israel for 80 years under Ehud, and uh, the judges brought military and judicial peace. But the judges also brought a religious stability. The judges, in a sense, had a restraining influence against sin the moment that restraining influence was removed evil was given full vent much in the same way that the Holy Spirit brings a restraining influence against sin today and when the Holy Spirit is removed um, at the rapture of the church it will give full vent to evil as it will be expressed during the tribulation and this trend within Israel should alert us to the unreliability of man apart from God we are all bent on sin and this trend within Israel should alight us also to the mercy of God despite Israel's rejection of him he continues to work with Israel and despite our rejection of God at times he continues to work in our lives he is faithful to Israel and he is faithful to us now the disobedience that we saw there in verse one uh, leads to discipline So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Azor. And then, minute, king of Canaan. Wait a minute. Didn't God repeatedly say, drive out the Canaanites? And what did Israel say? It's OK, we can cohabit. We can make the Canaanites work for us. Israel said, don't worry, God, we've got this. God said, no, you don't got this. And to prove it, the Lord allows Jabin to oppress Israel. To cohabit with the Canaanites is a picture to us of us cohabiting with sin. And how often do we cohabit with sin and tell ourselves and others and God, don't worry, I've got this. I know this program has sexual content and a high level of bad language. But don't worry, I've got this. I know this group of friends drink too much, take drugs and use a lot of bad language. But don't worry, I've got this. I know I should be at church or spending time with the Lord, but it's really important I get this job done. But don't worry, I've got this. God says, no, you don't got this. A little compromise today will bring a big consequence tomorrow. It was true of Israel and it'll be true of you. We have repeatedly seen, seen in the book of um, Joshua and Judges, that where Israel left the Canaanites unaddressed, it came back to bite them in the backside later on. And if we leave sin unaddressed in our lives, it will come back to bite us too. Now here we are introduced to Jabin, uh, the king of Hazor. And Jabin is actually the dynastic name for the king of Hazor because we're also told of a Jabin king of Hazor in Joshua 11 Verse 1. So there seems to have been many Jabins. And what he he did in Joshua 11 was he headed up an alliance of Canaanites that make a preemptive strike against Israel during Israel's northern campaign. And Joshua secured a decisive victory. But we read in Joshua 11.10, Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor and struck its king with a sword, for Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. So Hazor seems to be an epicentre of Canaanite control. But the city was struck and Israel took its spoils. But it did not occupy the city. And so the Canaanites came back and asserted their control. And here we see the outcome today. This kind of put me in mind of the parable of the Minas, which is spoken of in Luke 19. There in verse 13, Jesus gives the ordinance We should occupy till I come. Occupy till I come. The Lord has gifted us with all we need to secure victory over sin and the world. But we need to retain that victory. And we retain that victory by standing firm in the faith, clothed in the armour of God, and not allowing the enemy to advance. And this is the problem with Israel. They didn't occupy. They didn't retain that victory. And so we're introduced to Caesarea. Jabin, king of Hazor, had an army and Caesarea was the commander of the army. He was the field marshal Rommel to Jabin's Hitler, if you like. And uh, if you defeat Caesarea, then you defeat the king in many ways. So here we have Caesarea and he's going to be the head of the army. And we're told um, that there was 20 years of oppression that Israel uh, endured under Jabin and under Caesarea and it's interesting you know we're told in Hebrews eleven twenty-five 25 that there are pleasures of sin for a season but I've got to tell you 20 years of oppression is too high a price to pay for any sin 20 years of defeat subjection and misery don't be deceived sin always looks good on the outside but there's a snare that lies on the inside And Jabin's control was maintained through these 900 chariots of iron that we're told about. Now, these are the armored tanks of the ancient world. And when you had a field uh, full of sword-wielding Israelites or maybe holding tools or implements, whatever they could get hold of, ox, goats, um, and along comes an iron chariot, it will just mow down the men like a steamroller over ants. So Israel was held in check by fear of these iron chariots it says there that they were harshly oppressed Um, for 20 years he harshly oppressed the children of Israel the devil always uses fear to oppress and subject and to us this problem seems too big the situation insurmountable and we all have our own iron chariots or our own 900 chariots where we're facing situations that we just think there's no way that we can get over this. All I've got is a sword but what's the sword that we wield? It is the word of God. All Ehud needed was one sword and all we need is our faith in the word of God. Whatever you're facing God's got this. You might be facing a Jabin but you've got a Jesus in your corner. Put your faith in him. I was uh, mindful as I was preparing of a situation that uh, I was discussing with Jordan earlier this week. Jordan called me. He was facing uh, a situation on Wednesday, I think it was, where something had ended his life and it was controlling him by fear. And the problem seemed too big. The situation insurmountable for him to get over. It was 900 iron chariots facing him. We got down to prayer. We prayed about the matter. We didn't look at Jabin. We looked at Jesus. And the Lord brought his perspective to the matter and brought relief. And I got a phone call the following day from a completely different Jordan. God had come and brought deliverance. God can bring the release if we put our faith in him, not necessarily that which we can see with our eyes. So let's look at uh, the fourth judge, Deborah verses 4 and 5. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at this time and she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So we're introduced to Deborah and scripture clearly defines her as a judge but we're also told that she is a prophetess too. Uh, In Judges 5 we also see that she's a poet as well so she's a, a, a woman of wisdom a woman of words and a woman of worship and uh, Deborah may be the uh, only female judge but she's not the only prophetess in Scripture in Exodus 15 we read of Miriam as a prophetess in 2 Kings 22 we read of Huldah another prophetess and in Anna uh, in Luke 2 we read of Anna a prophetess And, of course, in Acts 21, we read of Philip's four daughters, all who were prophetesses as well. And the New Testament makes it clear that God grants the gift of prophecy to both men and women. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, we read, But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. In the New Testament church a woman would exercise prophecy in submission to male headship and this headship was symbolised by a head covering. Indeed the proper place for the exercise of the gifts of the Spirit is in the context of order established by the leaders of each local congregation. Some fellowships may have a more open policy, others more guarded but the important aspect is to operate all gifts in submission to church authority. God doesn't do loose canons. And Deborah is clearly a woman under authority because we are told that she was the wife of Lapidoth. Now we don't know anything more about Lapidoth, what he looked like, where he came from, who his father was, but she was in submission to him. And it's interesting that all the prophetesses in scripture are named in the context of their spiritual head. If we go back to Miriam, in Exodus 15, verse 20, we read, And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron. Aaron was her spiritual head. He was the eldest brother. When we go to 2 Kings 22, verse 14, we read of Huldah. And it says, Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalem, the son of Tikvah. So there she is, named in the context of her spiritual head, her, her husband. And then Anna, in Luke 2, Uh, Verse 36, we read, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with her and husband seven years from her virginity. So she's named in the context of her father and her husband in the context of her spiritual head. So whether we're talking about, um, so um, there should always be that authority that um, the woman should be operating under whether it be the spiritual authority of the church or of their husband, say. And when we are talking about headship in the setting of church or the setting of marriage, headship does not mean lording it over. It does not mean domineering. It does, And it certainly does not mean superiority. Let me read to you from Mark 10, verses 42 to 45. Jesus said, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles... Lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The biblical picture of authority and headship is one of service. The one who is in authority in church or a marriage is a servant, putting the needs of the other ahead of their own. And Jesus positions himself as an example in this. He did not come to be served, but to serve. Ian and I, as spiritual heads in the church, are here to be servants to you. And in marriage, the husband who is the head should be a servant, putting the needs of the wife ahead of his own. Now, Deborah. Didn't going back to Deborah. Deborah didn't have an office. She didn't have a a church building. She certainly didn't have a municipal seat. Uh, She had a palm tree. Uh, You know, she was a woman of low overheads, uh, or I don't know. Palm trees are quite tall, so tall overheads, but you know what I mean. And the Israelites would come to Moses and uh, sorry, as as the Israelites had to come to Moses before her to seek judgment on personal and judicial matters so they would now come to her and she would judge the people with a prophetic insight and help to with judicial matters and this suggests to us that Israel had lost faith in the priesthood because typically you go to the priesthood for these sort of matters Um, as either this or the Levites weren't doing their job of providing spiritual direction And answers and Deborah was used greatly by God and the question for many is not whether a woman can be used greatly by God because obviously they can the question is can a woman be used of God in leadership and Deborah is often cited as being the archetypal example of a woman in leadership now scripture clearly states that authority in the church and the marriage should be male Now, this is not due to male superiority. Many men I've met, sorry, many women I've met are far superior to men. But it's to do with God's creative order. It says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And in 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 to 14, we read, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So, the biblical pattern is for male headship and male authority in marriage and in church. And let's be clear Deborah was operating as a magistrate, not as a minister. She was a prophetess, not a pastor. She was under authority, not in authority. I hope that's clear. Let's move on and uh, let's look at Barak and the call of Barak. Verse 6. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, "'Take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Nephtali "'and of the sons of Zebulun. "'And against you I will deploy Sisera, "'the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots "'and his multitude at the river Kishon, "'and I will deliver him into your hand.' "'And Barak said to her, "'If you will go with me, then I will go. "'But if you will not go with me, I will not go.' "'So she said, I will surely go with you. "'Nevertheless, there will be no, there will be no glory for you "'in the journey you are taking,' For the Lord will sell Caesarea into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command. And Deborah went up with him. So here we are introduced to Barak, son of Abinoam. He was from Naphtali, uh, so he was a northerner. And uh, Deborah was from Ephraim, so she was from the Midlands. And there, in the Midlands, she calls for Barak to come down to speak with her, and Deborah speaks a prophetic word to Barak. He is to enlist ten thousand men from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun, and he's to to deploy these men to Mount Tabor. Uh, Now, Mount Tabor is in the tribal territory of Issachar, which is south of Naphtali and Zebulun, more towards the Midlands, and in turn. God will deploy Caesarea and the army of Jabin from Harasheth Hagoyim with his 900 iron chariots to the river Kishon. And there, at the river Kishon, God will give a victory to Barak and the armies of Israel. Now, I say all that, and if you're like me, I'm struggling to visualize exactly what that looks like. So, let me give you a quick map and try to help you to make sense of this. Okay, so here's a map of Israel with the various different tribal divisions, and you can probably see those red dots on the screen as well. So here we see Deborah in the Midlands. Uh, that's where she's operating from in the uh, territory of Ephraim. And here we have Kadesh, where Barak is based, and she calls Barak to come down to Ephraim, and. Uh, She says, go back to Kadesh, gather together a force, an army from Naphtali and Zebulun and come down to Mount Tabor. That's to be your base control. That's to be your HQ. Now, there's Hazor. That's where Jabin, king of uh, Hazor, seems to have been based. But here is Harasheth Hagoyim. That's where Cesare is based. And notice how far into the land he's been able to advance you allow sin into your life if you allow Canaanites into your life they won't just stay in one area they will spread and exert their influence further and deeper into your life and that's what happened here and uh, here we see the river Kishon and this is going to be the battlefield that's where things are going to really kick off let's just zoom in here and look at things a little bit more clearly you can see Mount Tabor there you can see where Harashroth Haggaiim is, and you can see the river Kishon. And so, God will deploy Shazera to come towards the river Kishon, and Barak will lead the armies of Israel uh, from the north down, and there there'll be a conflict, and God said he would bring victory. I hope that makes things a little bit clearer, and you can kind of have in your mind what we're talking about. Now, the first I've got three observations I'd just like to make quickly. First of all, Deborah is not commanding Barak. She is not in authority over him. Um, and Deborah the second thing is, Deborah is not directing Barak by way of a prophetic word. She's not delivering a word, and then Barak says, Oh, Crikey, it's a prophetic word, I better jump to it. She prefaces her prophetic word with the phrase, has not the Lord God commanded i.e the lord had already spoken to barak but but deborah uh, was merely confirming that word to barak god had already spoken to barak deborah was merely confirming the word and this is the pattern that should be followed in our own lives when god directs you in life he will always speak to you first not through a third party then he what he will do is he will confirm his word if needed through a third party i mean if god directs you and you hear his voice and you obey all well and fine it's when you hesitate or when you need confirmation god will provide that confirmation and quite often it comes through a third party but god will not direct you solely through another person of course if you ask advice of a godly person he may use them as an agent of wisdom and counsel but god has given you his holy Spirit as the principal counsellor to guide you in life. And we must all develop that ear to be able to hear the voice of God and to have that sensitivity to him so that we are guided indirectly, directly, directly. Beware of any pastor, prophet or priest who seeks to direct you in life. We are to be spirit-led Christians, not man-led Christians. And the third observation is, uh, who was in charge? Of the armies of Jabin. Was it Jabin? No. Was it Caesarea? No. Who was it? It was God. God was in control. Let me read that uh, to you again. Uh, The word of the Lord that was said in verse 7 And against you I will deploy Caesarea, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon. God is controlling Jabin's army. God was in control. God had sold Israel into the hands of Jabin and God would deliver Israel from the hands of Jabin. This reminds me of Job 12 verse 23 where it says, He makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. God sovereignly is in control of all nations. And determines their direction their rise and their fall so barrack states he will only go to fight if deborah accompany him accompanies him and i wonder if uh, you have the same knee-jerk reaction to me when you hear that statement if you will go with me then i will go but if you will not go with me i will not go my reaction is you great northern jesse man up you invertebrate come on um, I don't know whether you think the same as me. Now, while Barrack's answer might lend us to think he was spineless, I think the truth is far from it. Once he gets the assent of Deborah to accompany him, he doesn't hesitate once to gather the troops and to lead them into battle. There is no hesitation. There is no faltering. He fights with vigour and with enthusiasm. What I think Barak's problem is, is not military cowardice, I think it's spiritual uncertainty. He had heard the command of God, but had some uncertainty about obeying it, possibly because he wasn't sure if he had heard from God or not. Perhaps he doubted his own spirituality and didn't have the same convictions as Deborah. Have you ever doubted whether what you have heard was from God or not, and caused that a hesitancy in your walk? Kind of think that's possibly where Barrack is at this moment in time. You see this battle was not a test of his military strength. This battle was more a test of his spiritual strength and It would seem Barrack trusted more in Deborah's relationship with God than his own. What if the troops started doubting and wanted to turn back if his convictions weren't deeply felt, he wouldn't be able to rally the troops but Deborah was a woman of strong faith and deep convictions. If she was with me, me, her words of faith, which not only speak to me, would speak to the troops, and she would be the best candidate to rouse them in faith and give them the confidence uh, they needed. So Barak was looking to her, I believe, to be the voice of God, to be the voice of faith, to be the voice of spiritual stirring. To help the troops but let me tell you there will be times in your Christian walk when you stand alone and you will hear the call of God on your life and the Lord will challenge you to make a step of faith and though you know it's the Lord all you can think of is what if this all goes wrong what if this all goes wrong at such times don't put your faith in a Deborah godly though she might be put your faith in Jesus it's a stepping out of the boat moment I know the water has the potential to let you sink but keep your eyes on Jesus he won't let you fall step out in faith in obedience to what you feel the Lord is leading you to and he will not let you go and remarkably despite barrack's crisis of faith He is still upheld as an example of faith in Hebrews 11, verses 32 to 33. We might think of him as a man of weakness, but God sees him as a man of faith. So, yes, if you will go with me, then I will go with you. And Deborah gives a twofold answer. She gives him a promise and she gives him a prophecy. The promise is simply this. I will surely go with you. And once Deborah gives her consent to accompany him, they head off together to Kadesh to rouse an army from Caesarea to fight against Caesarea. Uh, But the prophecy she gives is this. There'll be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Caesarea into the hand of a woman. Because Barak would not lean wholly upon the Lord, he will miss out on the glory of killing Caesarea himself. This honour will fall to a woman, which is a double slight, really. Now, at this point, it would be easy to assume this honour would fall to Deborah. She would be the one to kill Cesare. But, however, it will fall to another woman to claim the life of Cesare, Jael, Peggy. And uh, we will get to her a little bit later on. Um, The setting shifts now from the mountains of Ephraim to the hill country of Galilee in Naphtali, Kadesh. And uh, Kadesh is the rallying point for the combined voices of Naphtali and Zebulun. Here they will journey south to to, to Tabor. And from Mount Mountabal, they will meet Caesarea under the forces uh, under his com- under uh, the forces under Caesarea's command at River Kishon. Let's let's uh, now we can, let's come to a subplot. We get to a subplot. So uh, verses ten to thirteen, and Barak uh, no eleven, sorry, to thirteen. Now Heber the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father in law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree at uh, Zanaim which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Caesarea that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Cesare gathered together all of his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim at the, uh, to the river at Kishon. So Heber the Kenite, a subplot of treachery in our tale, is what, Heber is what we might call a Canaanite sympathiser. He acts against the Israelites in favour of Sisera. Now the Kenites were a branch of the Midianites and they had allied themselves to the God of Israel. So they'd moved from Midian to the land of Israel. Moses' wife, Moses' brother-in-law and his father-in-law were all Kenites and they'd settled in the Negev in the south. We read about that in Judges 1.16. But Heber, we read here, had separated himself from the faithful in Judah and pitched his tent near Kadesh up north which is near Hazor, of course, uh, the city where Jabin reigned. And I guess he might be what we would call a pragmatist. He saw which way the wind was blowing and sided with Jabin, as this was going to be more advantageous to him. And uh, whatever his motivation, he certainly only had loyalty to himself. And being near Kadesh meant he was able to spy on the forces of Israel that had amassed there and then were travelling south. And so he sent word to Caesarea in Harasheth Haggaiim and reported all that he had seen. This guy is basically a weasel. But God is in control and using this weasel to deploy the troops of Caesarea where he wants him. And Caesarea uses his intelligence to move his troops northwards to the river Kishon. And now all the pieces are in play. Statistically and militarily, Caesarea has the upper hand but anyone with God in their camp has a majority. The treacherous actions of Heber the Kenite uh, kind of remind me of Joseph's reaction to the treachery of his brothers who sold him into slavery in book of Genesis. Do you remember at the time of their reunion and repentance? Um, we read in Genesis 50 verse 20, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day. To save many people alive. Heba acted with evil intent. But the Lord used it for good. You see the Lord can turn any situation in our lives around. So let's get to the battle. Verses 14 to 16. Then Deborah said to Barak. Up for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Caesarea into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. <clears throat> and the Lord routed Caesarea all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Caesarea alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagoim, and all the army of Caesarea fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. In Numbers 10 verse 9 we read, When you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets and you will be remembered before the Lord your God and you will be saved from your enemies. And we don't read of a trumpet being blown here or a shofar, a ram's horn, but I kind of imagine that as um, uh, they get ready to go down Mount Tabor, there's Barak. He blows a shofar and everybody runs down, although in many respects, the trumpet call seems to come at the instance of the voice of Deborah, because she is the one who says up. Stand, arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Caesarea into your hand. And so Deborah builds faith into Barak and his army and they're emboldened to charge in battle. Uh, They're not roused by hyperbole, but they are stirred by faith and the spirit of God. And if we need if we want to be effective in spiritual warfare, we need to be stirred by faith and the Holy Spirit, not by hyperbole. And self-confidence so Barak goes charging down Mount Tabor towards the river Kishon 10,000 Israelites behind him and they routed Caesarea and all his chariots and all his army but you've got to ask the question how did Israel overcome such an imposing and well-equipped army how do you overcome 900 iron chariots when all you've got is swords and possibly tools and stuff in your hand well the answer is simply God turned up now, iron chariots are un- unstoppable force on a flat terrain. They will mow down all infantry, as I said before, but their weakness lies in hills and mud. Uh, in hills, they find it difficult to go up and in mud, the wheels get clogged up and they cannot turn. And let's turn to Judges 5 verses 4 and 5. Judges 5 verses 4 and 5, where it says, um, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled, the heavens poured, the clouds also poured water, the mountains gushed before the Lord, this Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. It's poetic language, but what it's saying is the earth trembled and the heavens began to pour. There seems to have been a kind of earthquake of sorts that shook the earth, and this would have unsettled the horses, and sent the chariots into disarray. And also there appears to have been a flash flood, rain coming down, causing the Kishon to burst its banks and cause mud and a marshy ground to disable the chariots. And thus the war machines became disabled, and Barak and the army fell upon the army of Caesarea and killed everyone by the, the edge of the sword, or whatever tool or implement they could source. Some managed to break away and began to retreat back to Harasheth Hagayim. But Israel pursued them and defeated them. And you think, what an amazing sight this must have been. Israel, this once intimidated and subjugated people, fearful of the Canaanite war machines, emboldened by faith, are actually seen pursuing these iron chariots. That which once caused fear, emboldened by faith, they now pursue. And this can be us. Insteading from the iron chariots that the enemy positions against us, we can actually pursue them. I'm reminded of 1 John 5 verse 4, where it says, Everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the faith that has overcome the world, even our faith. Our faith in an all-conquering God will give us victory over all the intimidating things in the world. Right Now we come to our closing act, verses 17 to 24. <clears throat> uh, However, Caesarea had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. While, Canaanite, uh, while the Canaanite army lay dead or dying, Caesarea had jumped from his chariot and fled on foot. And while the stragglers from Canaan fled south to Harasheth Hagalim, Cesare fled north towards Kadesh. Now, this is the stuff of James Bond movies. The enemy forces have been defeated and our James Bond, Barak, has survived. But the henchman has escaped and there needs to be one final one-on-one uh, fight. But however, in a twist to conventional plotting, it's not our James Bond, Barak, that faces off the henchman; It's JL that will strike the final blow so let's read on and Jael went out to meet Caesarea and said to him turn aside my lord turn aside to me do not fear and when he had turned aside with her into the tent she covered him with a blanket then he said to her please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty so she opened a container of milk and gave him a drink and covered him And he said to her, stand at the door of the tent and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, is there any man here? You shall say no. Now here comes the payoff for the subplot of Heber the Kenite. A man on the run is always looking for safety and sanctuary and knowing there is peace between Jabin and Heber, Cesare makes for the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber. Now Jael is no fool. When she sees the bedraggled and exhausted frame of the field marshal of the Hazor army running away from battle she can tell which way the tide is turning her husband has allied himself with a losing side now is the opportunity to switch sides and readdress the balance <clears throat> so Joel uh, invites Caesarea into a tent now this is against all social etiquette and would invite the suggestion of impropriety but then again what better refuge for a fugitive? This is the last place Barrack would look. Thus, the safest bolt hole to lie low. So, Jael puts Cesarea at his ease. She covers him with a blanket to give him give warmth to his body. He, obviously thirsty from the battle and the and uh, the flight, asks for a drink of water. But she goes the extra mile and opens a jug of milk for him. Then. Wanting added security, asks her to stand watch and deny his presence, which she says she will do. And only then does Cesare permit himself to rest. Feeling fully secure, he falls into a deep sleep. But the security she, she, she supplies is a false security. And so we read in verse 21. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and he went down into the ground for he was fast asleep and weary so he died and then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him come I will show you the man whom you seek and when he went into the tent there lay Sisera dead with a peg in his temple in Sisera's mind he was safe but that didn't last the last thing to go through his mind was the tent peg. Sorry. Caesarea is seemingly lying on his side and the tent peg goes through the temple on one side and Jael drives it with such force that it goes down into the ground. Now, the Kenites were a nomadic people, living in tents, moving around, much like the Bedouins of today. And in Bedouin tradition today and in the Kenite tradition back then, it was the duty of the women to erect the tents. So I don't know what the women do, during, what the husbands do during this time. I don't know, drink coffee and check their iPhone, perhaps. But here, the women, they're well used to using hammer and peg. And uh, JL was used to handling these implements. And so she had obviously built up a lot of uh, upper body strength. She was uh, a tough Bedouin woman. Um, the sort of woman you don't want to meet on a dark night, you know. What's that song? Bedouin woman, stay away from me. Bedouin woman, mama let me be. <clears throat> Sorry. At some at some later point, Baraka arrives in pursuit of Cesera, and Jael beckons him into a tent to show him the lifeless frame of Israel's enemy. And so Deborah's prophecy of the glory going to woman is fulfilled let's conclude the last couple of verses so on that day God subdued Jabin king of Canaan in the presence of the children of Israel and the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin king of Canaan until they had destroyed Jabin king of Canaan the victory over Caesarea was an important uh, landmark But the struggle wasn't over. Israel had to continue to fight and it was through increments that they gained territory and the upper hand. It took time for a full victory over Jabin to be secured. And we may secure a victory in our battle against the flesh in our lives, but the struggle isn't over. We need to continue to fight. We need to continue to operate in faith. We need to continue to obey the voice of God. And over time, we will go stronger and stronger until full victory in Christ is possible. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, I pray that you'd help us to be people of faith, that when we hear your voice directing us and guiding us, we would move forward in obedience. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be people who do not allow the Canaanites into our lives to advance, but we would occupy till you come that we would stand firm and fight and though we might gain victories help us not to give up the struggle help us to continue to press forward knowing lord that with each victory we go stronger until that time of full victory will be won in jesus name i pray amen